0: Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from Judean mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis one 2, 3 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians, and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those, through this program, we are excited to connect you to people and stories in and related to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion@gmail.com at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic anytime. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow us and like inspiration from Zion. On Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned to the end of the episode. We were also going to share some exciting offers and opportunities. And please feel free to share this with others who you know who will also find it of interest. Today, I'm especially pleased to have a special guest, and you'll hear why he is so important. This week, the world observes International Holocaust Memorial Day. And it's a privilege to welcome Dr. Ephraim Zurov the chief Nazi hunter of the Simon Wiesenthal Center and director of its Israel office as our guest this week. Of course, it's fitting to remember the Holocaust and its six million victims, but today we're going to discuss why that's important, what it means to be a Nazi hunter, and how and why it's important to confront Holocaust denial and distortion. Dr. Zuroff is a native of New York who moved to Israel in 1970 after completing his undergraduate degree in history at Yeshiva University. He received his master's degree in Holocaust studies at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, where he also received his PhD chronicling the response of Orthodox Jewry in the United States to the Holocaust. In 1978, he became the first director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, playing a leading role in establishing the center's library and archives, and and was advisor for its Academy Award-winning documentary, Genocide. Over the past 40 years, He's played an increasingly important role in worldwide efforts to find and bring to justice Nazi war criminals. He began his career as a Nazi hunter in 1980 on behalf of the U.S. Justice Department's Office of Special Investigations. In 1986, his research undercovered the post-war escape of several thousand suspected Nazi war criminals to Australia, Canada, Great Britain, New Zealand, and other countries. Since the fall of the Soviet Union more recently... Dr. Zura has played a major role in the efforts to convince post-communist societies to confront the widespread complicity of their own citizens in the crimes of the Holocaust and to par- uh, prosecute local Nazi collaborators. In the summer of 2002, together with Aryeh Rubin, he launched Operation Last Chance, offering financial rewards for information that facilitates the conviction and punishment of Nazi war criminals. So far, the project has yielded the names of over 1,000 suspects, 110 of whom have been submitted to local prosecutors. In December 2011, in the wake of the conviction in Germany of Sobibor death camp guard Ivan Demanuk, he launched Operation Last Chance II to focus on the death camp guards and those who served in what are called the mobile killing units. In July two, 2013, Dr. Zurov launched a campaign in Germany under the slogan in German, late but not too late, to help locate Holocaust perpetrators, which also yielded the names of numerous additional suspects. Dr. Zurov is a highly regarded speaker, widely published author with hundreds of articles in numerous publications, as well as authoring a number of books on a range of topics relating to the Holocaust in many languages. He's also been written about and featured internationally in a wide range of media. In 1985 and 1986, Dr. Zorov was invited to Rwanda to assist authorities there in their efforts to bring justice to the perpetrators of the genocide which took place in 1994. And he has served as an official advisor to the Rwandan government since. In recognition of his efforts as a Nazi hunter and Holocaust scholar, Serbian President Boris Tadic and the members of parliament of the Democratic Party of Serbia, Nominated Dr. Zorov for the 2008 Nobel Peace Prize. Dr. Zorov, welcome. It's a real pleasure to have you on the Inspiration from Zion podcast today.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Well, it's a pleasure. It's really a pleasure to have you, and I, that's not uh, simple rhetoric. And, and and especially this week, uh, it was a great job in and of itself boiling down your uh, your bio for some for for someone who's as accomplished as you are. But I, I hope I I did you justice. You know, since most of our audience, before we get into the topic of Holocaust, most of our audience are Christians and understand and are interested in the prophetic return of the Jewish people to Israel. Could you just share personally what motivated you to make Aliyah, to move to Israel in
1: 1970? Okay, so I'm one of the people who uh, reached adulthood in the generation of the Six-Day War. And uh, I think it was that victory that, uh, in a sense, inspired me, um, first of all, to go to Israel to study for a year, a year which convinced me that uh, I wanted to spend my life in Israel and to be part of this amazing, what started out as an experiment, Zionist experiment, of creating Jewish sovereignty in uh, our ancient homeland. And uh, I just, I can tell you one one uh, anecdote, which I think says everything. On the Sunday before the war broke out, I think it's uh, on June 4th, 1967, I was a freshman at the Yeshiva College and uh, I was sitting at home reading the New York Times, which in those days, I think <laughs> was a, uh, there was a section called News of the Week in Review, okay, section four, if I'm not mistaken. Wow, And I think it was on page three, although I tried to find this afterwards, I couldn't find it. But what I saw on that uh, in, in the News of the Weekend Review was a map of the Middle East wow. and three figures, soldiers, tanks, and planes. And on one side, there was a long column. And the other side, there was only one entry. In other words, the lone entry was, of course, Israel. Yes. And on the other side, you had all the Arab countries. And in those days, Israel was much smaller than it is today. Correct. It didn't include Yudav Shomron, Judea and Samaria. And I took one look at that map and I said to myself, oh, my God, there's going to be another Holocaust. Now, the question that I've asked myself many times has been, where did that come from? We didn't study about the Holocaust in school. Wow, My parents parents are American-born. Where does that come from? And um, I think the answer is that every committed, affiliated, and involved Jew, in a sense, carries that memory uh, in some way, shape, or form as part of their Jewish DNA. So when the result, and you have to remember that the waiting period prior to the war was a period of enormous tension. Yes, uh, they were digging mass graves. They were digging graves in Tel Aviv for the for what they feared would be many casualties. Yes, Ahmad Shukeri, the president of the Arab League, said that the Jews better know how to swim because we're going to throw them into the sea. And it looked really terrible. And then instead of a, a debacle we won probably one of the greatest military victories in, in the history. Correct. And not only did we win a a military victory and eliminate the, the physical threat, we returned uh, to Judea and Samaria. We returned to the old city, to, to the uh, site of the Wailing Wall and the Temple Mount and all these places that are so, so important in terms of Jewish history and Jewish religion and all of that. And this, this victory sparked a, uh, a wave of interest and, first of all, admiration for what Israel was able to do. Um, and then all of a sudden, the notion of living in Israel became something uh, possible, became something pr- uh, sort of on the agenda, which it never was on the agenda of American Jews and Jews in the West, in the affluent West. Uh, Prior to that, in other words, the number of Americans who had made Aliyah to Israel prior to the Six-Day War was really negligible. Yes. Um, But between 1968 and 1973, 50,000 North Americans made Aliyah. Unfortunately, some of them went back, or maybe even many of them went back. But um, I was one of those people who decided that... um, Israel was the place for me. I wanted to be a participant. I didn't want to be uh, a spectator.
0: That's the, uh, I, I frequently use that analogy as well.
1: Okay. And when I moved to Efrat in 1983, mm-hmm. uh, I said to myself, I, I want to be on the starting five. In other words, uh, I don't want to sit in the stands. In other words, if I were to remain in America, I would give my country. I would, be, I would contribute to the cause. Living in Israel, I'm already a participant. Yes. And and uh, being uh, out there to build a new uh, a new uh, settlement named the Frack, I was one of the you know first families to move out there. So already I'm I'm on the starting five, and since I don't like to sit on the bench, so that that uh, you know I was very happy to do that.
0: Well, that, that thank you for sharing that. That's awesome, and it's interesting to to digress literally for half a minute. But a few months ago, in uh, I think October, we did an episode of the podcast. Um, uh, about, with Pam Cohen, who was the former head of the ah, of Union course. Council, right? And what's also interesting about what you said about the Six Day War is it not just awoke, uh, a sense of pride and, and, and inspiration among Jews in North America, but, but especially in the Soviet Union, who were, who were all but lost. And, and that's how that was kind of the beginning of, of the, the Soviet Jewry movement. And, and as you said at the very outset, to be part of this incredible experiment. And, and here we are for another conversation. But that's a great. Uh, we, I love to spend some time recounting what these uh, past uh, decades have been like for you. Um, but Listen,
1: I, I, I want to add something in that context. I remember I, I went to Israel in sixty-eight, sixty-nine to study for a year in, at Hebrew University. We were the first uh, people who could register for a year in studying in Israel after the war because the people yes. who came in sixty-seven were the ones who had registered prior to the war. Correct. Okay, so I went, I really fell in love with Israel and I went back and I said, I'm going to come back. And if I had any doubts, I'll never forget visiting Yasha Kazakov, the famous, one of the famous, uh, Kedmi today, his name, he changed his name to Kedmi. He braised his name and he was, he was on a hunger strike in front of the Isaiah wall mm-hmm. at the UN. And I remember so distinctly saying to myself, "If I had any doubts about making the jump, coming into Israel, this this convinced me. These guys, the Soviet Jews, I, and i had been very active for Soviet Jewry already from high school, from high yes. school years. Um So they they are fighting for the right, and we all we have to do is get on a plane.
0: Correct. You
1: know, Correct. so so you know." The, the doubts dissipate if there were doubts. Serious, there weren't serious doubts, but they, there was always some sort of reservation. Maybe, maybe I'm not doing the right thing. Maybe I should stay in America kind for of a couple of years, you know. So that that was really the uh, the thing that nailed it, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in a really very effective and very powerful way.
0: I so appreciate you sharing that personal context and and, and that uh, vision, the, the 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 fear that you had uh, June of '67 of there being another Holocaust. And, and again, not to digress, but Pam also speaks of her uh, um, coming around that time that you made Aliyah, her connection to the Soviet Jewry movement, realizing that the Jewish people didn't do enough to, to, to save our people in the 1930s and 40s. And now this was our turn. Um, so, so let's Listen, jump there's on- There's no
1: question, yes. there's no question, okay? That the failure of world Jewry in the free world be able to to do more for our brethren in in Europe was hanging over like a shadow was hanging over the Soviet Jewry campaign. So in my case, my doctorate was about a group of Orthodox rabbis that was founded in November 1939, initially to save only rabbis and yeshiva students. Oh, no kidding. Who had escaped from occupied Eastern Poland, which was occupied by the Soviets, and fled to Vilna, which had been turned over by the Soviets, which had been Poland between the two wars, uh, and turned over Vilna to independent, democratic, quasi-democratic Lithuania, and uh, because they knew that the Soviets would close down all the Shivot, all the Jewish religious schools. Uh, I see, sure. So... Then the whole question became, you know, what do we do with these people? Then they, they worked out a plan to send half to Er Israel and half to the United States. But but the, 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 the point was that all of this coalesced together for me. In other words, my activism for Soviet Jewry, my my Holocaust um uh the topics that I chose to do in other words to do my PhD uh on in, in the Holocaust all had to do with that. And that's why I chose, the, I, I chose the Holocaust as the area of specialization when I came to Hebrew U because I thought that I was thinking of going either to the, to the Jewish agency or to the foreign ministry. But as soon as I got to the Institute of Contemporary Jewry in Hebrew U, I realized that these studies had, there was nothing practical about these studies. Uh-huh. And it was all an intellectual endeavor to try and create scholars who would deal with the history, sociology, and demography of the Jewish people in the 20th century? So I said, if I have to already sit here for three what I thought was <laughs> going to be three years and end up five years for just for the MA, I may as well do something that interests me intellectually. And yeah. the thing that interested me more than anything else was how on earth was the show up possible.
0: Got it. So let's let's jump into that. You and and I love the, the comment that you used in a different context uh, earlier, talking about wanting to be on the starting five, not sitting on the bench. So uh, I don't know factually per, exactly five, but in, in the world of, of well-known Nazi hunters, you're in the starting five. Um, there, there, there are a couple who, who have preceded you, who kind of laid the foundation, and we'll speak about Simon Wiesenthal specifically. But how did you get into that? I mean, of, of all things, you could have been an academic. How did you get into being a Nazi hunter?
1: Listen, it's very simple. My fantasy growing up, very often when I give a talk about uh, my life as a Nazi hunter, people will come over to me and say, oh, wonderful, you have my, my dream job. When I was, very often children, grandchildren, now grandchildren of survivors, they come and say, when I was growing up, my dream job was to be a Nazi hunter, to catch those Nazis and torture them and kill them and whatever. I mean, little twisted uh, notions, of, of course. But but the real but the, <laughs> the fact of the matter was that I had no such fantasies. My fantasy was to be the first Orthodox Jew to play in the NBA. Uh-huh. So I always say that basketball's loss was Nazi hunting's game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, very. So, so tell us if it's, if, uh, again. I, I'm not a historian, and 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 my knowledge of. The the industry, if you will, that's not a good word of Holocaust uh, of 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 Nazi hunters. The 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 trade um, is limited, but probably one of the most well known was Simon Wiesenthal, for whom the center is named. That you represent, Uh, can you share a little bit um, uh, for the people who are listening about him? What made him special, and and when you got into this, how he was a role model for you?
1: Okay, so Simon Wiesenthal was a uh, Polish Jew born in the city of Buchach, which today is in Ukraine and then was in uh, Eastern Poland. It's also the city where Shai Agnon, the famous uh, Israeli Nobel Prize winner for literature was also born. And uh, he trained as an engineer, actually as an architect. And he was working as an architect in the city of Lvov, today Lviv in Ukraine, then in Poland, um, when the war broke out. And um, he was taken to various concentration camps, uh, forced labor camps. And uh, he and his wife lost, I think it's 89 members of their family in the Shoah. And uh, Mr. Wiesenthal decided after the, after the war that he would not go back to his profession as an architect. Although he was very, he was very talented as an artist and as an architect. He wanted to, he felt that he had to honor the memory of those who were victims by making the world a better place. And uh, the, the avenue that he chose was uh, justice. In other words, and there was a famous story about how uh, he, he was mistreated by a capo uh, who was appointed by the American troops who liberated Mauthausen, where he was liberated. Uh, who mistreated him, and he, he wasn't sure what to do. And uh, Abby Mann, who later became a very famous American uh, producer, director, producer, was among the soldiers who had liberated Matthausen and became, had been friendly with Mr. Wiesenthal, and he shared his um, his dilemma about what to do. And and Abby Mann told him, you've got to go to Richard Sable. Richard Sable was the commanding officer who had liberated Matthausen. And you have to issue, you have to complain. And that's what he did. And that person, this Polish kapo, a former Polish kapo, non-Jew, anti-Semite, was removed from his post as the person who would give permission to to camp inmates to leave the camp. In other words, they were free to go, but the army wanted to keep tabs on the people, so they had to inform the authorities. And he sort of controlled everything. And when Wiesendorf came to him and he said he wanted to leave leave the camp for a while, he he said to him, uh, this guy, uh, Russo, he said to him, oh, Wiesendorf, it's a shame you survived.
0: Whoa.
1: Really staunch anti-Semite. And and he was removed from his post by Richard Sable. So in other words, for for Simon, uh, this was a evidence of the the difference between the world and the Nazis, in which there was no justice, there was, there was law that the Nazis had made up, but there was no justice. Yes. In the new world, that would be post-World War II and would be a, a better world. And uh, he stuck with it. For, for In the beginning, he worked with the American army. Later on, they lost interest in prosecuting Nazis because they had to build up West Germany as a bulwark oh. against communist East Germany. So they lost their chesed, they lost their desire to Operation. bring him to justice. Yeah. And Simon closed up his office. This is in 1954 or 55. Sent all his all his files to Yad Vashem, with one exception. That was the Eichmann file. Oh. And he became a journalist. In any event, he was the first person who got uh, information that Eichmann might be in Argentina. But he didn't have the $1,500 it would have taken to send someone to Argentina to try and verify whether or not that was indeed Rich, uh, in other words, Adolf Eichmann. And ultimately, um, that information came to, came to the state of Israel via Fritz Bauer, actually by a, uh, Argentinian, Living in, living in Buenos Aires, yes. Luther, Herman, Luther, Luther Herman, who was blind. He had been incarcerated in Dachau in 1933. His father was Jewish. His mother wasn't. And it turns out that his daughter was going out with one of Eichmann's sons. And right. I mean, this, this, this almost defies the imagination. The guy changed his name. Adolf Eichmann became Ricardo Clement. Right. And he, he posed as the uncle. But the kids had the name Eichmann. Yes, and that's how, it, 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 at the end of the day, that's
0: actually how they found him. Yeah. So, so actually, I, I just want to interject on that note. Some people might, as, as infamous as Adolf Eichmann was, um, the, many people may not know the the, the significance of that um, of, of who he was and and um, and his being uh, captured and brought to justice here in Israel. Um, Eichmann
1: suggest- was the person in charge of all the logistics of the final solution.
0: Right. He and, and, and and and
1: served into- in Department 4B4 in the Reich security main office. He didn't have that high of a rank, but his importance grew as the uh, project of the final solution expanded and was fully implemented all over Europe. So, so this is a guy who... He's the one who said he goes happy into his grave and jumps happy into his grave because he knows that so many millions of Jews were killed.
0: Right. So there are a number of books out about that and, and a, a recent film, uh, which was a decent film. It, it, it over dramatized some parts. But if anyone wants information, please be in touch with that. But it's great that you mention Eichmann because, uh, he's probably one of the biggest, uh, Nazi war criminals to have been caught and, and brought to justice. Let's talk about those that you helped bring to justice. Just a couple of them, but I'm curious, what, were, what what can you share about some of the most, I don't know, famous, I'm saying in quotes, or significant successes that you've had bringing Nazi war criminals to justice?
1: Okay, first of all, I want to explain something. I think that it, it, you could say that the perhaps the greatest success that I had was by dis- by discovering the post-war immigration routes of thousands of Nazi war criminals who went to the uh-huh. Anglo-Saxon democracies, I helped convince Canada in 1987, Australia in 1989, Great Britain in 1991 to pass special laws to allow the criminal prosecution of Nazi war criminals in those countries. The only... Um, Western Anglo-Saxon country which refused to take any step was New Zealand and uh, I mean that's to my mind that's unforgivable and it's it's a terrible decision but the only thing that can be said is that the scope of the problem in New Zealand was much less than in the other countries okay. the other countries had admitted hundreds hundreds of, of Nazi collaborators in New Zealand it was dozens um, it later came back to haunt them very, just recently, two years ago, when they had named a ski run after a Waffen-SS, uh, an Austrian Waffen-SS officer who had spent an entire winter on this ski run before it was a ski run and uh, had uh, recorded the temperature and and, and the snow and, and everything. And uh, as a result, when, when it was turned into a ski run, it was, it was parts of it were named for him. But the, but it ultimately turned out that he gave, subsequently he gave a whole bunch of interviews in which he claimed that he knew nothing about atrocities. And he was a Waffen-SS officer on the Eastern Front, which is absurd. Right. Okay. And other things that, uh, and he he was, he made some uh, positive comments about Hitler. So we had a whole uh, fight there in, in New Zealand with, with my colleagues in New Zealand, people who were involved in Holocaust education and fight against anti-Semitism. And we got them actually to change the name. But uh, that was a classic example. Great. (laughs) Even even though most, almost all of the Nazi war criminals who went to Anglo-Saxon countries were not Germans or Austrians. They were, were Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Croatians, Poles, Romanians, Hungarians. The only, the, the Germans and Austrians among them were, for example, the scientists, engineers, and technicians brought to the United States in Operation Paperclip. In other words, the people who worked on the V2s rockets. Right. And they were brought they, they were knowingly brought to the United States, about hundred and fifty of them.
0: Knowingly as Nazis.
1: As Nazis. Knowingly known as Nazis. They their their fear, the fear of the Americans of Alan Dulles of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which is the predecessor of the CIA, that they would fall into the hands of the Soviets.
0: Ah, okay.
1: And in truth, some of those people were recruited by the Soviets. And there was mm-hmm. also a small group of people who were Recruited to serve to to be re parachuted into behind the Iron Curtain to serve as spies, sleepers. In other words, initially at some point to start sending information to the CIA. Uh, it's not clear what how many of those people uh, you know were actually sent back and to what extent they were successful. Some of them apparently were not successful at all. But in other words, but the huge number, in other words, in America, they talk about at least 10,000. So the huge number of those people were, for the most part, Eastern Europeans who got through the cracks by lying on their immigration forms. In other words, initially on their immigration applications, later on their citizenship applications. Got it. And, And they were prosecuted for that, not for the crimes, because the crimes were committed outside the United States and the victims weren't Americans.
0: I want to take just a moment to remind you not to miss out on winning a free book about Israel from Jonathan's bookshelf. Just follow Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and share the link to this program. Each time you share this, you'll be entered into our monthly drawing to receive an important book from my own collection that you're going to want to have for your own library. That's really fascinating what you were just sharing in terms of the escape routes and, and, and who was caught and where and how and what they were prosecuted for. Um, I'm curious, it's now several decades past uh, the end of the Holocaust. Who's still out there? Are there prospects for more trials?
1: Well, there are for two reasons. One is the expectancy uh, life expectancy has increased. Especially in countries like Germany and Austria, which have good health systems, and that's where most of the Nazis are living. Second of all, a very dramatic change in German uh, prosecution policy. In other words, it started with Ivan Demianjok, and is, this is actually based on, this is it's, it's hard to believe, but the source of this change started with the plotters of 9 11. Really? the people who plotted the 9-11 attack on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon were living in Hamburg. And the Germans wanted to prosecute them, but they of course didn't fly the planes, they didn't pull the triggers, so they they decided to prosecute them for accessory to murder, not murder itself. And two wonderful, uh, I, I in my opinion, they're righteous among the nations, non-Jewish lawyers who worked in the Central Federal Office for the Clarification of Nazi War Crimes, uh, came to the top officials and they said to them, why don't you apply the same logic to cases of Nazis who served in death camps or death squads? In other words, the death camps were created for the express purpose of mass murder of innocent civilians. Anyone who served in any capacity in a place like Treblinka, Sobibor, Belzets, Chalmno, Maidanik, and Auschwitz can be prosecuted for accessory to murder. And the Americans were desperate to get rid of Demianio, who had regained his American citizenship after returning from Israel. But uh, the Americans, to their credit, again prosecuted him for immigration and naturalization the violations. Uh, but they got a deportation order to um, to Poland. One second. Ukraine, Poland, or German? Yeah. Okay. In Ukraine, he's a hero. You know, it's like uh, he's a martyr. The Jews framed him. Yeah. (laughs) In Poland, they would have loved to prosecute him because he's Ukrainian, not Polish. Right. But no survivor of Sobibor remembered him.
0: Uh Uh-huh.
1: Okay, because now he's being prosecuted for Sobibor, not for Treblinka anymore, because they know that it's a case of mistaken identity in Treblinka. The Ivan the Terrible was uh, actually Ivan Marchenko, not Ivan Vignani. Okay In any event, uh, uh, but so the Americans seemed to be stuck with him, and it looked as if he's going to die in America. I mean, and, in other words, they devoted 40 years to trying to get rid of this guy, which was the maximum they could do. And it looked, it looked like it was, you know, it wouldn't happen. And because of this change in the prosecution policy, the Germans asked for him to bring him to Germany to be put on trial, he was prosecuted, he was convicted, he was sentenced to five years, and the min- and as soon as that conviction came through, the, the Germans started looking for any person who had served, uh. not only in a death camp, but also in the Einsatzgruppen and mobile killing units, in camps where the gas chamber, words, because the, there are six classic death camps. In other words, these are the camps, Auschwitz-Birkenau, the largest, Treblinka, Belzitz, Chelmno, Sobibor, and Maidanik. So those are the ones that classified. They were built, in other words, they had specific programs for mass murder, built for mass murder. But there are other camps that also had uh, uh, gas chambers, like Stutthof, for example. We've had a couple of trials already from people from Stutthof, or or places like Buchenwald or Sachsenhausen. So any camp with a high mortality rate
0: in 44,
1: 45, uh you could you if you found people who served in that camp, they could be prosecuted for accessory to murder.
0: So there's still people out there who 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 can be?
1: There's eight investigations going on right now in Germany. And there's two trials that are that are being conducted simultaneously. One of the secretary of the commandant of Stotov, where sixty-five thousand people were murdered, twenty-eight thousand Jews. Uh, and uh, the second is of a guard who served in Sachsenhausen, where about 40,000 people were murdered.
0: You've taken on a lot of um, big powers, uh, not just the uh, Nazi underground and individuals, but you've taken on uh, uh, governments and government institutions. Um, what, what impediments have you faced personally uh, tracking do, doing what you're doing?
1: Okay, first of all, one thing has to be made 100% clear. If there's no political will to prosecute Nazi war criminals, there'll be no justice. So people ask me, what's my job? I say one third detective to find the people, one third historian, that's my real profession, to find the documents and witnesses, and there's the proofs to help build the case, and one third political lobbyist Because Uh if there's no political will, It'll go nowhere. So the best way to explain it is to compare a 90-year-old Nazi with a serial killer. If a serial killer is on the loose in any normal country in the West, the local police will be out there trying to find this person because the working assumption is that serial killer will strike again and again and again until they're caught. And that's been the case, okay? But what are the chances of a 90-year-old Nazi murder? Yeah, Right. There's never been a case like that. So in other words, these countries know that all they have to do is ignore nudniks like me or other nudniks and the guy will die and it'll spare them the embarrassment, the expense. Yes. Of Balagan of having a trial like that. And that's, that's a difficult obstacle.
0: So, but the, 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 which kind of leads me to a, another question. It's 77 years. since so th- th- this week... We, we the 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 day to uh, observe uh, International Holocaust Memorial Day is the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, seventy-seven years ago. Some people would say, "Look, there the, the, the Nazis who are still out there are in their nineties and they're gonna die." What's the what's the case to be made, if any, just to stop and leave them alone? Uh,
1: this that's the worst thing you could do. Okay, first of all, the passage the passage of time in no way diminishes the guilt of the killers. Just because something happened 50 years ago doesn't make it less of a crime. Old age should not afford protection who committed such heinous crimes. We owe it to the victims to do whatever we can to bring the people who, who turned innocent men, women, and children into victims simply because they were enemies of the rife.
0: Right. Yes.
1: Right? This also sends a very powerful message, which is if you commit crimes like this, even years later, you might be brought to justice, which is an important message today as well. These these trials are also very helpful in terms of the fight against denial and distortion of the Holocaust. And I would add that these people are the last people on earth who deserve any sympathy, because they had absolutely no sympathy for their victims, some of whom were older than they are today.
0: Oh, very well. Put.
1: Testimony of hundred-year-old people reaching uh, coming from Hungary to to Auschwitz, for example, and they weren't sent to work. I can promise you. You know, they were sent straight to the gas to the gas chambers. And the other thing is that we, um, you know, I'm often asked, you know, the people who carried out these crimes. I, I. I Speak and it was until the pandemic before the before Corona. I spoke many many times to teachers who came from all over the world to courses at Yad Vashem, and uh, occasionally and more than once, many times I, they, there would be a teacher who would ask me, you know, Dr. Zurov. So many years have passed. The people who committed the crimes are probably sorry. So I have oh, some bad wow. news. had bad news for them, which is that in my Experience from the cases that I dealt with very intensely or very invested a lot of effort, there hasn't been a single case of any person who ever expressed any regret or remorse. And the last point I would say is this, and I tell this, I mean, you can wake me up in the middle of the night and I'll give you all the arguments because I've been (laughs) asked these questions a million times already by a million journalists and other people. But the point is this, These people are not being prosecuted because they didn't help an old lady cross the street. We're talking about people who in their prime were devoting all their energy, strength and energy to killing innocent men, women, and children. So they're the last people who deserve any any sympathy.
0: I call it a sympathy
1: symbol. If if the mercy is, is towards people who Committed the, high, the worst crime in the world, which is murder, in some cases mass murder uh, you know that's that's not uh, the way to deal with these things these just people,
0: because just because they're old and they look frail we should have right in other days.
1: words, think of them in their youth think of them when they were young, strong men yeah. and, uh, and they devoted all their you know all their energy and all their power and strength to uh, to killing innocent people, including oh. men, women and children.
0: One of the great things about a podcast is I, is people can pause, rewind, and listen again. And I think we still have a bit to talk about. But if the only thing that comes out of this conversation is what you just said, which you said so articulately, and and, and of course you've been asked this a million times, so you should <laughs> be able to. But I, I that that's a very compelling uh, um, um, statement regarding justice and and in terms of history and how we want to be. Um, how we want to be as, as, as righteous people. Um, let's, let's pivot away from the, 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 the Holocaust, the, the Nazi hunters rather, and, and talk about how your work has evolved to counteracting Holocaust denial and distortion. I'm curious why, first of all, what is it? Why is it important? And, and again, eight decades later, why, I mean, I think you may have answered some of it. why, Do we need to even remember still today and set the record straight for the future?
1: Okay. Um, First of all, to forget about the Holocaust would be a total betrayal of the victims. They deserve that their memory be preserved because we're talking about a series of events which could have been prevented had the world, the Western world or the democratic world uh, responded differently to the rise of the Nazis. And we're talking about a tragedy of a huge scale of some 50 million people who lost their lives in World War II. So if I were to tell you that World War II could have been prevented, you obviously would want to know. You want to learn about it. And what? Would, how could it have been prevented? or what should have been done? Because... I mean, even the loss of of, of a half a million or one million or two million is an enormous tragedy. Here you have a tragedy in which 50 million people were were, were murdered because of a regime, a criminal regime led by a, a person who was obsessed by hatred, intolerance, racism, you name it. And the whole world paid the price. So th- this is extremely, extremely imp- important and um, something that doesn't lose, doesn't lose its, its validity, I think, with the passage of time.
0: Got it. Uh, well, well said. Now, recently, uh, I, I want to use this as a prompt from my um, late layman ex- uh, knowledge. There have been Polish laws. That have been that have come on the books, making it illegal to refer to Polish death camps, Polish genocide, or other atrocities that took place in Poland, where Poles were complicit or or um, part part of the Nazi regime, uh, feeding into their anti-Semitism. Never
1: part of the Nazi regime. That's not true.
0: Okay. Okay. The, Thank you. The
1: situation in Poland was u- unique in a certain sense. I'll explain it to you. So let's let's talk about the issue of collaboration with the Nazis. Okay. It's very important to understand that issue when we talk about the the people's the helpers of the Nazis and they had plenty. In other words, the Nazis wanted to enlist the help of local people in every country in Europe that they either occupied or were allied with. The only exceptions were the six neutral countries, which is Ireland, Turkey, Switzerland Spain Portugal and Sweden in other words with the exception of Great Britain which fought against the nazis the entire european continent was under nazi control yes. now in other words from the beaches of normandy to the gates of leningrad and moscow from trondheim and norvik in norway to the greek islands so the nazis wanted to enlist local helpers for three reasons One ideological reason and two practical reasons. The ideological reason was they wanted to show that the local population supports the measures that they want to take against those enemies of the Reich. Primarily Jews, but not only Jews. Communists, homosexuals, Roma, uh, mentally ill, chronically ill. Um, And all those people who they wanted to get rid of. Okay, now, the practical reasons were twofold. One is that they were shorthanded because of the huge territorial mass that they had to control. So, of course, if they can if they can recruit someone local in France, in Belgium, in Holland, in Ukraine, in Lithuania, that frees a Nazi, uh, Austrian and German, to go somewhere else where they're more needed. But the other thing is this. They're about to launch an unprecedented mass murder operation. It's never been done before. We're talking about with the invasion of the Soviet Union, okay? and it's and it's going to be done by shooting. They come to a country like Lithuania. In Lithuania, they don't know the language, they don't know the geography, they don't know the topography. The plan is to, to shoot all the Jewish men and women in the country, who are 220,000, living in 234 no, 220 Jewish communities all over Lithuania. Okay. Now, what they're doing is very labor intensive. In other words, you have to arrest the Jews. You have to guard the Jews. You have to bring them to, you have to find a site somewhere secluded that no one will see what's going on. They have to shoot them individually. Every single Jew was murdered individually in the beginning. Okay? Then you have to cover up the scene Hide the mass grave, then, then take all the Jews' property, etc., and, and divide it. And in Germany, I mean in Lithuania, for example, there were less than a thousand Germans. Wow. So who's gonna do the dirty work? I'll tell mm-hmm. you who's gonna do the dirty work. The Lithuanians. Got it. So my latest book was a book called Our People. Discovering Lithuania's Hidden Holocaust, And I wrote it together with a Lithuanian, non-Jewish author, a very popular author, who um, discovered that her grandfather and her aunt's husband were involved in the persecution of the Jews. And she wanted to atone for it, which is very unusual in Lithuania. There are very few people who have those sentiments. Okay, and we went to 40 places of mass murder where Lithuanians killed Jews, 35 in Lithuania. And there was a Lithuanian unit that was sent to Belarus that murdered at least 20,000 Belarusian Jews. So we went to five of those places, okay? And everywhere we interviewed any elderly person, we found. And the first question was, well, who carried out the murders? Every single place they said the Lithuanians. Now, these are all Lithuanian non-Jews, the people we spoke to. There are no Jews left in the small towns. Right. Okay? Every single one said the Lithuanians. Then we started discussing the whole issue of the motivation of the killers, the role of anti-Semitism, the role of the alienation between Jews who are more educated in most cases than the Lithuanian farmers, etc. And uh, we taped our conversations as we went from place to place. And that's the book in other words the book is um is research that my co-author did on three elements of lithuanian society the political leadership the local administration who came back to serve the nazis after the soviets were kicked out and the murder squads and then our our trip and what we found and how people explained in some cases but what they told us, we saw people, we met people who were eyewitnesses to the murder. One, as a, a farmer today, an eight-year-old kid, he hid in the bushes to see what was going on, and he saw the mass murders. So, and and we also went to local museums, for example. We went to the museum in Ponovich, which is, uh, had a Jewish community of about 8,000 people before the Holocaust. So, uh, we and Parovic is, is a city today, the third, no, the fourth largest city, I think, in Lithuania, or the fifth largest. And uh, when we went to this museum, I asked the, the person who was in charge of media relations, I asked, is there anything here about the Jewish community? So he said to me, no. I said, are you aware of the fact that there are millions of Jews all over the world? Millions of people, I didn't say Jews. There are millions of people all over the world who know the name of your town. He goes, what? What are you talking about? I said, you know the bakery conditory opposite the bus station? Wow. That's the building of the Panovich Yeshiva. And I explained to him what a Yeshiva was, why they build Yeshivas. And I told him a little bit about the history of the Panovich Yeshiva, Rabbi Kahaneman. And the guy was in shock. And when I came out of there, I said, I said to my co-author... I said it first in Hebrew. I had to say it in Hebrew. I said, "Ratzachta, yarashta, machakta." You murdered, you inherited, you erased. Now it's a takeoff on what Eliyahu Anavi, Elijah the prophet, said to King Ahab. Next to King Ahab's palace, there was a very wonderful vineyard that was owned by Navot, Navot Akamali, and. Ahab, the king, tried to buy it from Navot, and Naboth refused. So Ahab had him killed. So shortly thereafter, King Ahab, this is in the Book of Kings. King Ahab encountered Elijah the prophet, and when Elijah saw Ahab, he said to him, you murdered and inherited." And this is a similar case. It's even worse because they right. erased the whole thing.
0: Now, now, was there was there resistance there to what was this? Was this just like a light bulb went off they didn't know or or, or are they the, the word that you used when we when we were setting up this conversation was distortion is there a deliberate attempt there to distort yes. as it is
1: Yes, there is a, a deliberate attempt to distort with four goals, and I want to explain to our listeners that what we 're talking about is not a a a problem that exists only in Poland or Lithuania. It exists throughout post-communist Eastern Europe. It exists in Ukraine. It exists in Belarus. It exists in, in Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, Romania, Hungary, Croatia. All over. Now, let me explain the goals. But but one thing I have to uh, provide is a, a background on the historical context. It will take me a second, a, win- a minute. Okay. Only in Eastern Europe the collaboration with the Nazis include participation in systematic mass murder. It's a very important point. In other words, outside of Eastern Europe, the collaboration ended at the train station or at the port. In other words, the French collaborators, Vichy government, were not asked to kill the French Jews. The Belgians were not asked to kill their Jews. The Dutch, the Italians, the Greeks, the Norwegians, they carried out the first stages. They... Mm -hmm. They created anti Jewish legislation. They made the Jews' life terrible. They arrested the Jews and then either put them on trains or on boats to go somewhere else to be murdered by someone else. That somewhere else was Eastern Europe. That someone else was the Nazis and their local ac- accomplices. Right. In countries like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Ukraine, uh, to a lesser extent in Belarus, the Nazis incorporated them in the framework of mass murder. And that was not the case in Poland, because in Poland the Nazis considered the Poles uh, subhumans only a notch above the Jews. They also murdered 3 million non-Jewish Poles.
0: In addition to the 3 million Jews?
1: In addition to the 3 million Jews, but there are approximately 200,000 Jews who were murdered by Poles or turned over to the Gestapo by Poles. But that was personal initiative for the most part. In other words, it wasn't organized by any higher Polish authority, or any Polish government, or any Polish underground, or anything of the sort. Now, it's also true that the nationalist uh, Polish underground normally would not accept Jews, whereas the the communist underground in Poland did accept Jews. That was a way of saving Jews. So it's very complicated in Poland, but Poland is not the same as the other countries. Lithuania, okay. for example, and Ukraine. So so let me let me basically summarize. They want to minimize or hide the role of their nationals in the, in the crimes. If you go to Lithuania, you go to a ceremony, for example, on Holocaust Memorial Day, they'll say the Holocaust was terrible. The Nazis came and murdered our Jews. Boo-hoo-hoo. Okay. Then, if you press them to say, ah, there were some social misca- misfits, you know, marginal criminal elements who helped them, but that's not the story. The story is far more serious. Now, obviously, there wouldn't have been a show out without the Nazis. But in Lithuania, the to, over twenty thousand Lithuanians were active participants in the whole in the whole process. Right. Okay. So, one is to minimize or hide local crimes. Two. Is to promote the canard of equivalency between communist crimes and and Nazi crimes, in other words, and to insist that, that that communism is genocide, which is very important for them because if communism is genocide, that means Jews committed genocide because there were Jews who worked in the NKVD in the in the Soviet uh, security apparatus. So I mean, but they didn't do it out of loyalty to Jerusalem. They weren't getting their, their inspiration from Jerusalem. They were communists. Yeah. They left the Jewish community. Okay, now, if everyone is guilty, no one is guilty. Okay? Third point is they want, they have, they're looking for new heroes, for their own heroes, because they're new, they're new democracies. So the problem is that who's a hero in these countries? Those who fought against the communists.
0: Ah.
1: Uh. What happened if those who fought against the communists murdered Jews during the Shoah? That's very that should, in theory, disqualify them. Sure. But it doesn't. So in Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia, in all these places, you have people who don't deserve to be added or glorified, being glorified because of their anti-communist activities. And last but not least, they are pushing for a joint Memorial Day for all the victims of totalitarian regimes. In other words, communism and Nazism. So if that were to be accepted... Uh and they if that would be accepted, what do you need International Holocaust Day for? This would cover uh, right. more victims, cover more victims, make more people happy, and the date that they chose is August twenty-third. Why August twenty-third? What? what?
0: Which is what, yeah.
1: It's the day of the Molotov ribbentrop Pact. In other words, the,
0: oh. the, the Soviet
1: Nazi non-aggression pact, which paved the way for World War Two. So in other words, you innocent observer think that the Nazis are solely responsible for all the people murdered during World War II. Think again; the Soviets are just as responsible, which of course serves their purposes because it focuses more uh, attention on their suffering under the communists.
0: In addition to inspiration from Zion, another Genesis One Two Three Foundation program, Run for Zion, is the first program uniquely for Christians centered around the Jerusalem Marathon, creating meaningful and lasting experiences. We look forward to having you be able to join us in person soon, but now are offering you a way to connect from wherever you are in the world through virtual tours, webinars, and briefings. For information or to register, please go to runforzion.com. Join Run for Zion and bless Israel with every step. What you just said about the, the reason why specifically these post-communist Eastern European countries um, w- w- are, are complicit and, 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 are, and are distorting reality is, is, is something that I had never heard. And so I'm sure a lot of other people listening haven't. Um, and it's scary. It's very scary uh, on a lot of levels. You mentioned earlier about being a lobbyist, being a third of your, your, your job. Uh, That less about confrontation and more about bringing people in. How do you, how today, 2022, 77 years after the Holocaust, after after at least the liberation of Auschwitz, how do we confront the issue of distortion and denial today that you've, in, in a way that you've been so successful, not getting people's backs up and resisting listening to reality, but that properly addresses? the issues without sugarcoating or uh, or, or dismissing their their um, their suffering as well. This, this has been a tough
1: uphill battle, I have to say. And I've earned the enmity of practically every single country in, in uh, Eastern Europe with the exception of Serbia, where they love me because I helped bring a couple of Nazi war criminals to justice who had also murdered Serbs, not only just Jews.
0: Aha, huh, Okay.
1: But um, in other places, they literally hate my guts. I'm I'm like the most hated Jew in Lithuania and Latvia, and probably in Estonia as well and Croatia. And it's not any even more than that. But um, but listen, I I um, my my motivation is is uh, to represent the victims. They're not here to 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 fight you know, for their memory, to fight for justice, to fight for uh, the accurate narrative, someone has to do it. So, listen, when people ask me, how did you become a Nazi hunter? So I sometimes jokingly say, you want the mystical answer or the practical answer? (laughs) So, So everyone usually wants the mystical answer. No, but so I was supposed to have a different name. When I was born... Uh, my father sent a cable to his father-in-law, who was in Europe, on behalf of the Joint Distribution Committee, to help, uh, help provide the religious needs of the DP camps and the DP of the survivors. And uh, so, so he sent back a cable my grandfather, uh, you know, uh, suggest naming him Ephraim. Now, Ephraim was his youngest brother. my my grandfather's maternal grandfather was from a family of six boys and the five oldest ones were able to get out beforehand but only the uh, year was left and uh, he was a Rosh Yeshiva in uh, one of the Yeshivot in eastern Poland. He ran away to Vilna. We even found the house where he lived. I have an interesting story about that if we have time. I don't know if we have time but in any event, um, so so in those days, 1948, I think kids still listened to their parents about what names they should give their <laughs> children. Today, I couldn't believe such a thing would happen. But uh, in any event, so instead of being Moshe Daniel, I became Ephraim Yaakov. So, so Ephraim Yaakov was my grandfather's brother. He, uh, he was murdered in Vilna. And I uh, even met a person who... Who was with him? Who learned with him in yeshiva, and later met him again in Vilna. They had both run away from Eastern Poland, and um, he told me exactly what had happened. He, the, there was a uh, on Yudzaiy Tammuz, the seventeenth day of the month of Tammuz. was a fast day. Three weeks before the fast on the destruction of the temple, which that that year was pushed off to Sunday because the date fell on a Shabbat on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um the there were Lithuanian gangs roaming the streets of Vilna looking for Jews with beards. And apparently my great uncle had a beard, although in all the pictures that we have of him, he doesn't have a beard. Okay. But when he became a Russian Shiva, maybe he grew a beard. And even he was he was caught and he was taken to Lukash's prison and apparently to Ponar, which was the mass murder site of the Jews of Vilna in one of the first mass murders that took place in those days by the Lithuanians in, in Lithuania. So you could say that, people say that uh, names mean something. I'm, I'm a Litvak, I'm a Lithuanian, I'm you a know, Lithuanian origin, so I don't know if I, if I buy that, but uh, maybe it had some sort of influence. But for many years, it was never personal for me. I have to say, I always tried to be, in other words, not, not to make it personal, it can't be me against this guy, bad guy, or that bad guy. It has to be the good guys against the bad guys. And that's the only way to do it.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Definitely want to have you back uh, to share some of these uh, more, more personal stories. Um, But, but kind of wrapping up the conversation, at least for now, um, what are the biggest impediments dealing with the distortion? Is it nationalism is it anti-Semitism? Is it a lack of caring?
1: All of the above. All, all, of, it. The, all of it. Now, we, we are making progress, I have to say, because this year, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance has made the fight against Holocaust distortion a major plank of its efforts. But I tell you the truth, it, it, it is an absurd situation there. They have, I think, now 36 countries already But everything has to be done unanimously. And some of the countries who are the biggest offenders sign on to these decisions. Ah, But but they're the ones who are doing it.
0: As if there's no contradiction.
1: As if there's no contradiction. Yeah. But listen, I mean, we have have great historians like Yehuda Bauer and others who are fighting against this very strongly and uh, doing whatever we can. I mean, I'm among them, but not, not a great historian, but I'm saying I'm, I'm one of the people who's, who's fighting. I've been fighting, I think, longer practically than almost anyone else. And um, I identified it already years ago as a serious problem. It, so, it's,
0: interesting, it, it's interesting you mentioned Huda Bauer. I remember in my Holocaust studies class in college, and uh, it's been more than three decades since I graduated, um, using his his books, um, he's not a young he's not a young man, and I'm well, curious, in 1926. 1920, very much not a young man. Um, he should live and be well until 120. But my question is, I was going to ask you, what do you see different? I mean, it, it's wonderful to have um Holocaust historians like Yehuda Bauer. I I happened to read about Deborah Lipstadt uh recently and for her potential appointment on some cabinet level position in the U S and I was surprised because I've known her for a lot of years that she's 74. She's also not young. And I'm wondering what, where do you, in all of your career, how do you look at at young people understanding, caring, embracing, or, or, or the opposite differently than older people? And, And what, if any optimism, do you have that young, how young people might be confronting this reality?
1: Uh, I think there are many people who are studying, preparing themselves as scholars in the field, uh, in many different countries, many of them non-Jews, by the way. Um, And uh, there's no shortage, I don't think, at this point in in scholarship. But um, the the problems are political. In other words, this is a political battle. And um, a lot of scholars don't want to engage in political battles. Uh, to Jutta to Bauer's credit, he understood from the very beginning what a serious threat this was to the future of Holocaust commemoration, history and uh, research, education. And he's out there fighting, as he should be, despite his advanced age. So he's, uh, he's also an inspiration for all of us.
0: Thank you. That's actually very helpful. So actually, the last thing I wanted to ask you before we wrap up... Um, this week especially, I mean, remembering the Holocaust, commemorating the victims, your relatives, my relatives, six million of us, um, but, but it's not always on everyone's radar. If you could recommend one book and one movie for someone to watch now this week, what would you recommend? Um, one book.
1: I would recommend a book called, and I would recommend two books. One is Into That Darkness.
0: It's a very good Jewish answer, by the way. Uh,
1: Into That Darkness. I, I, two books aside from my own.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay, yes.
1: so Into That Darkness by Gita Sereni, who interviewed Franz Stengel, who built Sobibor, was the commandant of Treblinka, for 70 hours before his trial in Dusseldorf.
0: Wow.
1: She wrote an absolutely fascinating book about the mind, attitude of a mass murder, the biggest mass murder in human history. That's one book. And um, another book I would recommend very highly is called The Lost. The Lost is Daniel Mendelssohn's Search to find out about his relatives who were killed in Bolachov, in Eastern Poland, or today Western Ukraine, uh, and uh, it's it's a search. It's an amazing it's an amazing book on many different levels. Written extremely well. He's a professor of literature in Bard, I think it is. But um, the book the book, um, in other words, it's a micro of what so many families went through or didn't go through or didn't try, even try to go through but this whole this whole uh, effort to try and find out everything possible about what happened to his father's brother who was one of seven brothers who came to the United States but the only one who left the United States after his immigration and went back to Bolochov uh-huh and ironically, Daniel Mendelsohn looks like that brother.
0: Oh, wow. Like
1: brother. So every time he used to come to a family affair, they say, wow. oh, you remember, you remember, so you remind us, I don't know what his name is. I forgot what his name is. Mendel, I don't know. You know? And he took it upon himself. He's a very, very talented writer, Daniel Mendelsohn, um, and uh, made a made, uh, tremendous impression on me. Um, I, I, of
0: course, want to recommend my own books. <laughs> and all the books by Dr. Freins-Ruff should be, uh, actively searched for and purchased.
1: No, not, not all of them. The no, which books, one? The two books that I would recommend is one is called Operation Last Chance. Okay. One Man's Quest to Bring Nazi Criminals to Justice. That's the story of how I became a Nazi hunter and my efforts to bring people to facilitate justice. You have to remember that I can't bring anybody to trial. In other words, yes. I can only help make it happen. And the other one is the book on Lithuania, with together with Ruta Vanagaita called Our People. Yeah. Um Discovering Lithuania's Hidden Holocaust. So those those books basically, in other words, they've been translated already into fifteen languages, the two of them together. Wow. I mean, um and three more languages in other words, it came out, first of all, in Lithuanian. I was incredibly happy about that. And it made an enormous impression in Lithuania. 20,000 copies uh, bought. The most popular book in public libraries for three years running. Wow. In Lithuanian Hebrew, my, it's the first book I also got published in Hebrew. Russian, Polish, Swedish, English. And now it's coming out in Dutch, Ukrainian, and Japanese. Amazing, and in uh, Operation Last Chance also came out in nine different languages.
0: Very good. so,
1: but some of the but some of them are the same language, so it's fifteen languages together. The, right. I, I know my arithmetic, <laughs> okay? Yeah. So uh, that that's the that's the personal story. Here, here it's a very, I mean, it's the the book on Lithuania is very, very uh, unique because no one has ever done something similar. A descendant of the killers and a descendant of the victims go together. To find out the truth about what happened in Lithuania. And the truth yeah, is that's,
0: terrible. That, when you mentioned it before, that it sounded fascinating. I'm glad you uh reminded us. So everyone folks, you have your reading list. Now, Dr. Zorov, what one what one film? You're Ooh. sitting in front of Netflix. Oh, what's the wow, film?
1: Wow, 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 wow.
0: One movie, I
1: mean There's so many different uh, facets and so many different... Um... You know what? There's a movie on the prosecution of Franz Maurer. It was the uh, one of the commanders of the Vilna Ghetto. It was done in Austria. It was done extremely well. And it's a it's a movie that, that gives... I would say tremendous insight into the uh, the obstacles that we face in trying to bring people to justice. Very I'm nice. Trying to remember the name, I don't remember the name. <laughs>
0: but, uh, but if you I look at we'll,
1: Prince Mauer, Mauer, M-A-U-R,
0: M-A-U-R. we'll put it up in the in the spe- in the in the show notes for here. Yeah, yeah. um, Doctor Zuroff, this has been you're a tremendous wealth of knowledge. I knew that academically. We've connected over the years uh from a distance i'm so grateful uh that you joined us today um sharing just a just a, a a scratch of the surface of of all the things that you've experienced thank you for for um honoring us and and helping us remember
1: okay thank you thank you for the opportunity to reaching your audience which i think is a very important audience and uh one of great value and uh I'm hoping that the people will appreciate, uh, you know, the stories and the information, and all of that, and will uh, try and increase their knowledge uh, beyond this podcast.
0: Yes, let me let me uh, take just a couple of minutes uh, for a couple of concluding remarks. Um, first of all, folks, if you stayed with us this long, you de- you you definitely deserve a reward. <laughs> Beginning this month, eh, not, not just you, just in general. Uh, beginning this month, the Genesis One Two Three Foundation is offering a special gift. Each month, we'll be giving away a special volume from Jonathan's bookshelf. Please go to the Inspiration from Zion social media and like and follow us. And when you comment and share the link to this program, there, we will select one winner at random. And this month, uh, we are giving away an autographed copy of Dr. Daniel Gordis's book, Israel: A Concise History of a Nation Reborn. Perhaps in the future we'll get one of Dr. Uh, Doctor Zurov's books. We're especially grateful today that this podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run, Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're in the area and need something that a greenhouse carries, please pop in and get it. Or if you're in the area and don't need anything, just go and say hi and thank them for helping make programs and dialogues like this possible. Also, thank you to the Coyne family for their special and meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges. This episode is sponsored by a good friend in Canada who helped us conceive of the Hug a Holocaust Survivor program. Uh, she wished to be anonymous, but we're grateful for her sponsorship of this episode. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one, Or a special occasion, please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We'd always love to hear your comments as part of a dialogue and invite you to send any questions as well, especially questions you have about traditional Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs. Please share this with others who you know who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are safe and healthy and send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains. Thank you and God bless you.